When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It's brand new Season 2. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Office Hours, where we sit down with the chief executives shaping the world and answer your most pressing questions about leadership, careers, and life. I'm Mike Steib, and today we are hanging out with my friend, Claire Hughes-Johnson. Claire was most recently chief operating officer of Stripe, the payments platform that, during Claire's tenure, became one of the most valuable privately held companies in the world. Previously, she spent 10 years at Google, where she oversaw operations for YouTube, Gmail, Google Apps, online sales, and served as vice president of Google's self-driving cars division. She is the author of Scaling People, Tactics for Management and Company Building, a lecturer at Harvard Business School, and a board director at Hallmark Cards, The Atlantic, Amoresco, HubSpot, and the Milton Academy. She is an operator's operator. And if you want to learn how to make a company run well, or how to make your life run well, this this is the episode for you. Claire, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's so good to see you. I'm really and pumped be here. to have you in town and have you in the studio. I've been looking forward to doing this for, for a while now. Same. So, Claire, in your book, which I loved. Oh, thank you. You quote Picasso. I, you said, when art critics get together, they talk about form and structure and meaning. And when artists get together, they talk about where you can buy cheap turpentine. That's true. That's today, one of our favorite quotes at Stripe. We are talking turpentine today. So the questions we got from the audience are about management, operating principles, hiring people, budgeting, productivity, all that kind of stuff. That's the awesome. brass tacks. So if that's all right for you, we'll roll right into the first question. I'm very excited. Awesome. Dina in South Brunswick, New Jersey, my hometown, says... Can you both talk about your past to senior management and what experiences made you an effective leader? Well, Claire... Mm. You did politics, you yeah, did consulting, I had a very... and then big formative experience at Google, yep. and then Stripe. Yep. I think I would say I had one. a very um, diverse early career. Mm-hmm. I kind of tried a bunch of different things. I didn't follow. Maybe that's the, the real headline. I did not follow a traditional path. A lot of my friends in college were applying for consulting jobs, banking jobs. I went and tried to get a job on a political campaign and did and probably made about five cents an hour. But I ended up in like, I mean, I wasn't 
making a lot of money, but I ended up with a lot of responsibility uh, because campaigns have trouble hiring talent and keeping them. And it's, it's a job where there's an end date. So some people find that risky. I wasn't afraid to take some risks. So I was like the deputy campaign manager. So I'd say cool. early career responsibility um, and frankly, giving up the reward and mon the monetary reward side, but taking it in responsibility and scope. And then at Google, as you said, I joined, I guess before you, I joined before the IPO. Google was about right. 1,800 people. When I left, it was maybe 57,000, which it was, is pretty It was probably nuts. five or 10,000 when I got there. Um, yeah. Post-IPO. Oh, still, you saw a lot of that growth. I mean, but for me, I think that early management experience combined with some skills I got in business school and consulting was a good combination for what was a very yeah. fast moving entrepreneurial environment. And at Google, without naming like too many specifics, there was a few times where I ended up being the manager of my peers. You know, you get elevated right. sort of into the role, tapped on the shoulder, and that's a real make it or break it moment. Are you going to be able to step up and lead the people who were your buddies? Or are you not? And uh, it took me, I had some false starts, but eventually I figured out how to do that and um, make an opportunity work for me. And your advice for my friend Dina then would be yeah. go to Google when it has 1,200 people, but yeah. Google doesn't <laughs> anymore. So how if somebody's yeah. looking to do that in their own career, what's the move? I think one principle is earlier in your career is a good time to take risks, uh -huh. right? So whether that's a really early stage company or a sort of passion project, but be thoughtful about it. Yeah, as you said, don't go to right. the thing that is the hotness for everyone. Think about where's the world going? Where in the environment can I have an impact that I'm interested in? Uh, and take a risk. And that's number one. I think the other is when you are offered, someone said to me, uh, luck is when uh, preparation meets opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think really watch for those moments when you're getting tapped on the shoulder and take it seriously. Say, yeah. I'm being asked to prove myself and I'm going to double down. Uh, take a bet on yourself, but you're going to have to work hard. On the preparation point, my two cents are, by the time I was asked to manage a sizable team, yeah. I had already read all the books. I had, I had watched all the YouTube. Like yeah. I had been preparing for this exactly in great frustration that I wasn't being asked to lead, to lead, lead all Mike, the world's people. I'm shocked people. to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> but when the moment came, you know, folks are always like asking like, how, you know, in their development conversations, how do I get more senior? And yeah. the, the, the question I should be asking is, how do I get more capable yeah. so that when the moment comes- How am I ready? I, I deliver exactly when I'm more senior. My move to Google came at a different time, but there was something that I would I, I'd note for Dina and any of our listeners, which was it was clear that the world was moving aggressively toward technology. Google was where the world was going. I was at I was on the 51st floor of Rockefeller Center in a huge office with a door that closed and locked with an assistant, and the person one senior to me had an assistant with an assistant. Oh yeah. And when I came to Google, it was a pay cut. Mm -hmm. It was a it was a four person office with a little. Uh, my desk was in a hallway yeah. when I joined, <laughs> <laughs> and it and it felt like and I remember there's somebody somebody who like runs a lot of the media industry now said to me like you're going to Google that was like that was last year that was a trend last year what are you doing, and there was this moment where even though I mean Google was probably doing ten million of cash flow a day when I got there it wasn't heroic, but to take what might be perceived as a, as a prestige step down, mm -hmm. but that is a step up in learning growth and a company that's growing is a company that's creating more opportunities for you. That was a big, right. important move for but me. But also seeing where's the puck going to go macro, macro. I mean, look, in those days, you could look where are consumer. Consumers were increasingly online. Yep. Ad dollars were not. Period. Like, it's pretty obvious. The ad dollars, the dollars which coming. is a huge sector of the economy. Don't kid yourselves, folks. Trillions right. of dollars, trillion on, dollars on advertising. Uh, that 
you if you saw that and you said, where am I going to go that's going to be able to take advantage of that? But it's then, a company like Google, consumers online and a monetization engine. You went to Google before the IPO. It scales up. Yeah. You did all the fun stuff. You worked on like self-driving cars. I worked on a lot of products. Hey, and not it's nothing against you. I'm still driving my own car. But like you worked on all these super cool things. And then you left for another early stage one. A lot of people, when they if they're if they're lucky enough to pick a winner, they just ride it. Uh-huh. And you left. So what what's the lesson from that? Why did you leave? I think you know we. I know you care, Mike, about this. We talk about personal values, mm-hmm. right? I think one of my I have sort of two values that have always come up for me in my life. Uh, the first one is about learning. Uh, my parents are teachers. If I'm not learning new things, like being challenged, I start get to itchy. get, yeah, I get itchy, but I also, I get a little depressed. I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm not getting better. That's one. I think the second one is impact. And uh, I heard you say in a previous episode that like, if you didn't show up at Google, no one was going to really notice. Like, oh, I, think it's, I think exactly what it says when I left, the stock didn't go down, stock, which is even more which is even funnier. Uh, sad if you think uh, about it. But, but I was loving learning the new space of self-driving cars. And I'm actually on the board of a company called Aurora also, which is uh, founded by the guy I was working with, the engineer on self-driving cars, because I believe in him so much. Yeah. And the technology is so interesting. And it is going to happen, folks. Uh, it's an autonomous vehicle company because we're working on trucks too. But um, but I would say I wasn't having the same impact. I wasn't learning at the same rate. I kind of felt like I was just getting better at managing Google versus leading. Right. Like being a really proven leader. Mm-hmm. And you also... You have a point. It, it was starting to feel a little mercenary. Like I was getting paid to kind of stick around and manage the system mm-hmm. as opposed to do something better for people. Like you, you know, get a yeah. product out there that mattered. You know, it was time. Which I knew it was time. And um, and you also have to ask yourself at that point in your career a question, which is when I look back, am I going to regret not having sort of tried something? And for me, Getting in earlier and seeing if I could be at the head table building a company, mm-hmm. I think I would have regretted not giving myself a shot. We had um, we had Anjali Sood from mm-hmm. uh, Tubi on a few episodes ago, and she noted that in her career, when she took on the thing that was more niche and smaller, even in a bigger operation, yeah. it's what created the opportunities for her too. So yeah. once the company has fifty thousand employees, it's just hard. Yes. To really, really matter to the outcomes. Yes. For some, for some, for some and of be us. able to say like I did that. I, I'm. Yeah. I direct that outcome. And some of it's your personality too. Like some people do better in captivity. You were, you were yeah, ready to no, be in the wild. I've never been a big company person. Let's let's be honest, Mike. There we go. So you're a big book person. The book is enormous. <laughs> it's all the Folks, things. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk more about the book. It's really, really good. And and I think the, the next question starts to get into it. So Liam in Berkeley says, I'm part of a startup that just raised our first funding. You've each seen companies grow quickly from early stages. What do companies get wrong when they're scaling? And what do the great companies get right? Yeah. This is, um, this is the thesis this of the book. Well, the book has sort of two main sections. One, the first part is company building. Mm-hmm. So what does it take? I mean, my answer to this question is you got to notice what stage you're at yep. and start to adapt and adjust. And if you don't, um, you're either going to fizzle out before you can get the traction and start to scale or you're going to, there's a quote from, I forget if it's Hewlett or Packard, which is, after a certain point, companies die of indigestion more than starvation. Right? It's probably true. Right, probably true. So really recognizing, um, there's an expression I think Y Combinator uses, which is do the unscalable thing. 
Which is true. When you're building something, you do it yep. manually. What you yeah. don't know what the process Especially is. Especially in marketplaces yeah. where I've spent a lot of time. Yeah, just, you don't you don't know. You gotta do it blocking and tackling, hand to hand combat, figure it out. But if you don't notice that it's time to start automating that mm-hmm. slash scaling it, bringing in people to do it, specializing, you're going to start to dive into gestion. So I think some companies really lose that. The great companies, you know this, they care about the culture. They care about the value. Like w- they build a system of trust that frankly holds the center when all the chaos, like it's a great problem to have to get in high growth. Yeah. You and I have both worked in high growth yeah. environments. Uh, but if you don't have some foundational stuff in place, the thing can break. And that when I um, when I went in at Artsy, where I am today, the business needed someone who comes in with the scaling people mentality. Like there was just a lot of talking that wasn't leading to the right action. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of goals that didn't necessarily tie into the revenue drive train. Didn't have it, yeah. All that stuff. But the culture was so good. And uh, to the credit of Carter, my predecessor, there was a there was a, a trust and a vulnerability and an Great. openness and an attachment to the mission. And that part's so hard to build. Yeah. So for Liam, if you know, if you just raised your first round, if you don't get your applicant tracking system nailed for your recruiting team in the first year or two, it's okay. But getting the kinds of people who are missionaries, mm-hmm. who are really driven by the mission of the company and 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 are right for the culture that you want to create for the long term, that's that's the set of ingredients yeah. in the stew that that that, that lasts for and, a long and time. And that early talent really matters. But I talk in the book about writing founding documents. Why do you exist? What are your values? Why are those your values? Don't just write obvious motherhood apple pie values. Write the real stuff that differentiates you as a company and a culture. Let's talk about values for a little bit. Because yeah. someone had, mm-hmm. uh, let me find, find the question, because someone had actually hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, Simone in San Francisco said, I've recently taken over a team whose core values are stale mm-hmm. and not very memorable. I would like to redo them, and I'm struggling a bit with the exercise. Can you share how you've developed yours in the past and any best practices? Yeah. So we'll throw right to, we'll throw right so to Simone's question. Sure. There's personal values. There's actually a lot of great exercises. I have one in my book and in, in one of the appendices. The book has a lot of templates and practical sort of exercises, which is just about taking this list of 50 values, narrowing it down, and then really pushing yep. yourself to kind of get down to three. Like so it was like really write, write down 50, then write, the you know, most important 15, 10, and then, then five, five, then three, and then really be able to take someone who knows you well it gets hard five. and sort of say, you know, when, when the chips are down, what is going to matter to me more in a decision I'm making? You know, like a major yep. career decision, a major family decision. What's the value that really shows up? Um, so the personal values, I think, actually is similar to companies, which is unfortunately companies or teams often write aspirational values. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people want to be customers first. Let's be customers. Customer centric. We're customer centric. I mean, you and I both Google, not actually that customer centric. Uh, very mm. technology centric. That's right. And in getting there was no, there was no phone number you could call yeah, to. Yeah, and <laughs> and Stripe on the other hand, we have a value. Our f- number one value is users first. And man, you see it in how the company is operating, which can be tough, by the way. Sometimes yeah. user calls and complains. People are jumping all over it. Roadmaps going out the window. But it's like we take this feedback seriously. Mm-hmm. We we are listening. Um, but it's got to be real. There was a there's an old acronym I love um, from some brand expert, ARBED, which is is it relevant, believable, enduring, and deliverable? So does this value actually feel real, not aspirational, mm-hmm. to how the company makes decisions, how the team operates today? And what, the way to test it is write the value and be like, can I tell some anecdotes of that value in action? 
I'm a, I'm also, I'm a big fan when we've done it. Uh, I seek to make the values verbs, mm. not nouns or adjectives. Mm, nice. And, and as a result, what you can do is you can put the core value to where the, probably the most important one I've had, um, professionally is make fast decisions. And there's this moment in every meeting in every meeting, if you don't get this right, where people are, Oh, it's a good point. Like we should take this offline. Let's uh, oh, we should schedule it. And then someone, once we got everyone in the company saying, can make we make a fast decision? And that's it, when you know it's working. People are actually working. saying the words it's in the working. meeting. And I will say that. I mean, Google people made fun of don't be evil. Remember that as a value at Google? Right. But I was in some early Gmail. Gmail had just launched when I joined. Um, this is a lot of data in your email. And there was a meeting. A lot of law enforcement agencies were requesting data from Gmail to, to mm -hmm. investigate things. And we had a whole meeting with legal, policy, engineers, very young company then, which is how do we be compliant? with the law, but not evil. Like yeah. you can't be just letting users data out to anybody who asks. And I was like, this is real. Like this, people are using the words, don't be evil. They're arguing about really difficult choices you make when you have a product like that. Yeah. And they're trying to do the right thing. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. 
So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a voicemail from Zara in Boulder, Colorado, who asked, What is your number one most important operating principle? How do you make it stick with your team? So there are, you have like 500 pages of operating principles. No, there's four in the book. There's four in the book. The first one, one, the first one uh, is build self awareness to build mutual awareness. Uh, A lot of management books, you know, this are all about the team and the organization. And my thesis is actually, it starts with you. Mm -hmm. Who are you? What are your blind spots? What are you great at? What do you need around you to be successful? How do you then build a team that can operate, frankly, make you operate better as a leader? Because I think you and I are both people who are more oriented toward what does the team do? Um, And so it's really about taking the time to introspect, ask the questions, take the work style analysis, understand who you are and what kind of leader you're going to be. Mine is, uh, we uh, stole it from Apple, but it's the concept of directly responsible individual. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably say four times a day, who's the DRI? Who's the DRI? We use that at Stripe too. We love and, DRIs. And it is we still so, it, just as you were walking in, I was commenting in a Google Doc, someone said, uh, you know, what's the, is is the supply impacting the data in the marketplace? And I said, what is your path to finding this out? And the person replied, we could do this or we could do that. And I said, we have never done anything. The <laughs> yeah. DRI does it. Are you the DRI? Am I the DRI? And then the part of the question from Zara was, how do you make it stick? Yeah. I'm fond of finding any notable way you can as a leader to make it stick. We do an annual uh, art exhibition at Artsy because we have so Love many it. people who are artistic yeah. in our company. And I cre- commissioned, created in partnership with an artist, a huge neon sign that just says directly responsible individual. People knew the second they came in Love it. who did that piece of art for the thing, but you I remember, love it. you remember. So excellent. Zara, you know, the, from, from my money, DRI is a good one, but um, this next question was texted to us. Elijah in Syracuse, New York said, Claire, your book talks about self-awareness mm-hmm. as a foundation of good leadership, including Myers-Briggs personality types. Mm-hmm. Mike, in your book, you use a happiness matrix to direct folks to their right career path. Can you talk more about these exercises and how they helped you find your career path? and find the right place for you. So, yeah. right there. All right, I'll Pre- start. Operating I'm principle number one. I want to hear about the happiness matrix. So, what I what I do in the book I, is a simplified framework. You know, I've taken a lot of these assessments, My, Myers-Briggs, DISC, Insights Discovery, Enneagram. Anyway, I think they're interesting. I, I they're take interesting. the feedback, especially when I do 360s and you're, people uh, fill it out. What are your letters? You're like an E, N? I am a really strong N anytime I take it. But and I'm and a T slightly and a... an E, but I used to be more ENFP, and then later in my career I became ENTJ. Okay, for anybody who's e, done a this, a lot of CEOs are ENTJ. You can take these quizzes online, but I definitely adjusted from my more yeah. feeling, perceiving to more thinking, uh, and with and experience, judging. right? With experience and with business training. Let's be honest, yeah. like and which kind of fits with the self awareness. So anyway, let me boil it down for you. There's this very easy framework that I was like, which is if you think introvert to extrovert, yep, and the best litmus test for that is do I 
talk to think, which is an extrovert, which is what I am. I think you are, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Or am I an introvert, which I is I need to think. I have a, po- I have a think. podcast, obviously. I talk uh, yeah, to think. Yeah, exactly. Look <laughs> at us. Um, or am I an introvert, which is I need to think to talk, mm-hmm. right? That's the litmus test. And then the other axis is am I more task-oriented or am I more people-oriented? And there's no judgment. So then you've got these quadrants, which yeah. am I, am I extrovert who's people-oriented, extrovert who's task-oriented? You get the idea. Yeah. And then you think, okay, let's be honest with me. Where do I place myself on that? And you can put yourself on the line, you know. So for me, I'm extroverted, but I'm not extremely extroverted, but I'm over the line, over the You're midpoint. Over the um, and I'm actually pretty balanced between task and people, but I kind of say, and then I look at myself and I say, okay, where's my blind spot? My mm-hmm. blind spot's the opposite of where I am usually. I need someone around me. I am not the first person in the room to say, where's the data that supports this, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I'm analytical thinker, but I'm not as data-driven. I am more intuition-driven. I'm very intuition-driven. I'm very pattern and system match person. Mm -hmm. And so I need to hire people who are like, nope, don't agree. Don't like your decision. Where's your data? Uh, They need to check me. And and I have learned over time that self-awareness has made me better. One, because I've learned I don't have that. And two, yep. when there's people in the room with me who are like that, they make me, a, I make a better decision. Right. As long as they're the kind of people who are willing to disagree with you, then you've got the perfect. Yes. And you've got to create recipe. an environment where people are willing to disagree with you. So that's where you. for you, that's, so that's where self-awareness has helped you find the right place for you in the world yes. and the right, the right teams to build. So I'm. We're sharing. I'm. I'm. Hey, e, tell I'm, me about I'm the in, I'm in T T J, and I'm House Gryffindor. So those are like uh-huh. two quizzes you can take online, Both and they tell very you very critical, right? And 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 I'm a Gemini. All three of those are obviously scientifically sound. Yes. In my book, it was. It's more about trying to find your specific career path, and so it it asks you to find design principles for your career. Like, Everyone says money's not important and they're lying. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants more money, but they're not clear about well, how much. Security. And and what and one of the exercises we do in the book is how much equals security. Yeah. yeah. What are the kinds of things that would be important to you at different stages of your life? Yeah. What's the number? And then once you know the number, you can start to narrow down industries and roles and functions and um and so that's this is what I mean about early career risks. Think about the calculus. And then take the oh, risk yeah. in that direction. When I was 25, I, what, was, what was I risking? I had an air mattress. Yeah. I was like, but what's going to happen when I lose the air mattress? <laughs> but you want to pick a career where- Where it's going to get you to a place where it, it, it adds up to what it is that you, yeah. you, you feel you need seeking. to- And then more is nice if that's important to you. But those kinds of design principle exercises, I, I remember I had an opportunity once when my kids were little for a big job that was going to be probably 150 plus days a year away. On the road. And it, like at that moment, it just it didn't it didn't align to my happiness yeah. matrix. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have been the things that are important to me at home and work at the same time. Right, it's not so. all financial. It's about it's about the rest of your value system and then getting that balance right. And I think that is self awareness, by the way. That's introspection. Yeah. But you got to be honest with yourself. What, so, are, what are these things that really matter? And how do I design toward it? The other thing I talk about in the book is it's an easy mistake to make, and I have made it in certain moments in my career, which is there are some things, Mike, I'm quite good at but I don't love them. You don't like doing them. And so don't get trapped in a job. Everyone's like, oh, you're doing great. I'm promoting you. You're great at this thing. And and you're like, yeah, but that's actually not what I want to be doing with all, I actually all make long. the case that if you're not good at something, you should disregard that because if you care about it, you will figure it out. You'll There's nothing out. we do professionally that is that hard that you couldn't possibly Learn it. Yeah, you Unless, and I like, are not your, your brain field surgeons. is like, yeah, you uh, uh, brain surgery. I, I mean, you probably figure out brain surgery. You can't figure out how to play for the Knicks. 
That's probably Shame. one where I can't just believe in myself so much, but uh, within the range of the target audience for this podcast, I think generally. Yeah, you can, you can figure learn. it out. That's very growth mindset. There we go. Um, so for Elijah, who asked about it, I'm here the, the intersection here of know yourself and what you enjoy. And then also this, the, the intersection of that is know what your needs are in life, yes. your, your personal design constraints. Mm -hmm. And within that, you can craft a, a, a career that's impactful and fun and, and rewarding fulfilling. and fulfilling. And we wish and you, you can gut all check. the best with I it. I mean, I think my advice is also start on a path, use those design principles, and then gut check every 12 to 18 months. Am I still on a path that's, am I learning? Am I getting there? Am I not? What do I need to course correct? That's right. It is, uh, it is constantly evolving. And if you missed it, Elijah, we had, a good uh, we had a good episode with Jim Citron a couple of weeks ago where he talks a lot about finding, the, fi finding that career path. And I, I recommend that one. I've got the next one from Luna in Palm Beach. It says, you've been part of or led some highly regarded teams. What are the keys to building and forging great teams? You know, I think this is going to sound um, egotistical, which is not my general mode. I do think great teams need a great leader. Like the, just like young companies are like a mirror to the founder. You know, mm -hmm. you see a lot of the founder values and their their strengths and their weaknesses in a young company because it's like you're holding up a mirror. I think great teams is a little bit of a mirror of the leader. And so um, is that person doing it for the right reasons, accessible, open, direct, building trust every day, close? You know, one of the favorite stories I've heard recently, I was in a, a roundtable discussion, and I don't think they'd mind me saying this, with the founders of Wayfair, which is this really important. Uh, successful yeah, yeah. online uh, retail company. And it's it was founded in the Boston area where I'm from, and they have operations all over the world now. And they were talking about their early days and how they, they didn't have offices. They sat with the team. They did a lot of the customer service. They were very close to the business. And then someone asked them, like, how did you get comfortable building trust and, and scale? And they were saying, well, what we always did is we tried to stay close to the truth, um, but recognize we needed to not do the job anymore. And I, and someone said, you know what I recognize in you is like, you guys figured out a way they, what they did is we had three things that mattered to us, you know, and we just stuck to those three things, those metrics, and we watched them and we, we got on the ground whenever we could and we stayed close to the truth. And I think great leaders do that and build trust along the way. So step one, be a, be a great leader to get a great team. Yeah. Uh, Luna, I would add the majority of people I've worked with are bad at hiring. Oh, uh, and, and and I don't mean that about anyone I've worked with. I mean, most people are bad at hiring and people are bad at hiring, um, in my experience, for three reasons. One, they fall victim to believing in the brand signals. So you went to Princeton, yeah, yeah. then you went to Wharton, then you worked at Google, then you, you must be smart. And you're good at interviewing. There's an, and by the way, here's, there's, here's an alternative. You went to Princeton because your parents went to Princeton. That almost got you into Harvard automatically. That almost got you your first job automatically. Yeah. And since then, you've been living off of the oxygen from, from that first mm -hmm. move. Like those are also potentially true statements about yeah. the candidate. So now you have to put aside the, 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 the personal branding that made the candidate attractive to you and assume that they're not competent and they're hiding it. And then you have to interview them in a way that they still like you and still want to work there. And putting aside those but you're biases. you're defaulting actually to no until you're convinced otherwise. And do it in a consistent way with every candidate. This to me is the key. 
it isn't. Everyone's like, well, it's an art. There are people who can pick talent and people who can't. And you're like, actually, you could, if you're more scientific about it, it's meaning not. you ask the same questions I ask the to same every candidate, questions. you be- develop a corpus yes. of great answers and not great answers. And believe me, you're going to get better at the science of hiring. I agree, Mike. I think spending time on team composition formation, who are you hiring? Who are you putting in the roles? Uh, One of my favorite interview questions actually for leadership roles is tell me about your current team. Map it out for me. How did did you come up with that structure? But how did you get those people in those jobs? That's a great way to ask. And they reveal a lot about who did, did they develop internally? Did they hire externally? Did it work out? Did it not work out? You know, what did you do about it? My favorite thing to ask when somebody's uh, being hired, as I ask the hiring manager, is she intelligent? Mm. And then the hiring manager says, yes. They always say yes. And then I say, prove it. What were the questions that you what asked? What did you ask? How did you test the person? And when they say back, there's always somebody who'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She went to Dartmouth. I'm like, I caught you. Yeah. Right? You're falling for the brand signaling. You should be able to over the course of a few interviews with someone, really dig into hard questions and see how the person processes it. And it's not an IQ test, it's a, it's a, it, but it's a problem solving and curiosity and disciplined thinking test that yes. for most jobs is really important. And I'm just shocked that people yeah, don't shocked. do it. Uh, by the way, also people don't use reference calls. They, use, they do the reference call, they have the recruiter do the reference call, which is usually the reference thinks, well, I'm just supposed to say nice things. But if you pin them down, so you say either to the to the referee in this case, you say, are they on a one to 10 of all the people you've ever worked with? Where does this person fall? Mm-hmm. And someone's going to, well, if they say 10, great, but they're going to say like eight because they're trying to be nice. You say, well, why didn't you pick nine or seven? Or they say, you know, six, you're like, oh, you know, or I say, are they in the top 10% of people you've ever worked with? Mm-hmm. And people don't like to lie. So they're going to be like, uh, no, or top 20. Or if they say yes, top five, Why? You know, you really have to nail down the reference with a very specific, uncomfortable question. And I know it sounds like you're ranking and rating people, but you're not going to get a truthful reference if you just say, well, you know, what are they great at? What could they work on? Have you read all the Patrick Lencioni books? You must have. I have. The Five Dysfunctions. Of the team, definitely. I have found that the one concept uh, of what it, who is your first team which is to it's say you think critical. of your peers as your first team, not your department as your first team. Critical. To me, that is, that, that is, if I just hire really good people, that can be an A team. But when you hire really good people and teach them to run the team as if we all own yes. it, you build that culture, that's when you get an A plus team. Agreed. That's an A plus team. Completely agreed. And you know, when you see people struggling, it's often because they don't have that team. You, you hire someone... And maybe your org structure is in a certain way where they're sort of off on their own mm-hmm. and they have no first team naturally. I often, especially a, a more senior hire, often they're struggling because like they're not part of a thing. That's right. Or a lot of times if you hire people who've spent too much time in big companies, oh, yeah. they're the incentive structure is sort to of be very you on against. Your own. It's, it's yeah. more political than it is. Like there's yeah. not a lot you can do to make the big company succeed on your own to our earlier conversation. Mm-hmm. So you have to, back to the interviewing point, if you're hiring people who've spent a lot of time in a lot of big places, you have to really drill into how do they transcend that, um, that incentive structure yes. to one where they're a, good, they're a good member of the team. Notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. 
And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. (laughs) And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Ava in Santa Cruz says, Writing a book is on my bucket list, but I never seem to have time to do it. You each wrote a book while presumably being super busy. How did you pull it off? What was your process? By the way, we've had 11 execs now on the podcast. Four had a book. Yeah. I think now five. I think you're number five. Wow. So it can be done. How'd you get it done? It, is, it was not on my bucket list. Um, the Stripe co-founders, Patrick and John Collison, really felt strongly that there was not a tactical enough book on company building and management. They're both very, they're autodidacts. They're very well read. They've read all the they're things. Right. We know and, we needed this book. And I then did some, my own research and I said, okay, that's a fair point. I don't know that I'm the person to write it, but they seem to have decided that I was the person to write it. Um, so that was, so this was a weird one for me in that it almost became part of my job in that my, the founders I worked with were like, we want this for you and us and Stripe um, to put these thoughts you have down on paper. Uh, but I'll be honest and say it was brutal. I was like a year or more than a year behind my schedule because yeah. I did have a day job. It's I started when I was COO. I mean, and then the pandemic hits 
And I guess the pandemic is the reason, by the way, it didn't get written quickly because at the beginning of that, we had to, I really had to reset some things. Uh, But then it's the reason it was written because I wasn't traveling. I wasn't, had no social life. I was trapped in my house. So I'm going to be honest. It's hard. I mean, I don't know about you, but I needed to really be like locked in a room a couple of times on a deadline to get that thing done. Two by two personality matrix, you are extroverted. More extroverted. You need to talk it out loud exactly and you need to be with people and writing a book is it, very it is only a lonely solitary yeah. the exercise book actually started patrick fooled me and he said here's what we're going to do we're going to have someone interview you once a week and transcribe the interview and that will be the book and i believe which by the way does not work it, it works for work. like a blog post does oh, not work i also tried i hired a ghostwriter yeah, that yeah, doesn't. That lasted for one chapter, and I was like, I no. would never write this. Yeah. And, and so, it, it, a now, book people is. People ask me, who was your ghostwriter? It is a writer? labor. Like, it is a labor of love. You have to do it yourself. Yeah, and I I, and, and then I think I got into it, obviously, and I, you know, it, and it became something that, I mean, I shared some chapters with the, the sort of the target audiences, sort of founders of early stage companies, and they really valued it. People didn't who weren't even my buds. They were like, yeah. Can you yeah. write more? And so it started to become important to me. I like the way our friend Shashir is doing his, which is yeah. doing it publicly. So you can, if you, you can log in and comment to yes, the book as it's being like, made. That's, that's so Shashir. I hadn't thought of that. Um, but you, you just really wanted to get it done. Well, so no, I, I struggled with it as you did, Ava. I would, um, first I'd note, uh, I met uh, Michael Lewis one time and mm. he was asked this question. He's a better answer to this than I did. He said, um, he said, very everyone wants to have written a book very few people want to write a book Mm, and so sort of the first question for you is do you really do you want to just be able to say i wrote a book or do you have something really important that's so important to you that needs to be said that you you have an urge to do the work that's a great point and if the thing you have to say is that really is really that important it needs to be brought into the world you'll you'll find the motivation that you will need and then the process for me was three hours every Sunday for two years. Yeah. I carved out that time. I got up early before the kids. Yeah. Everyone knew daddy's in the office. Don't go in. Yeah. I was working on the book. It actually wasn't even an office. It was an attic. I was in the attic. I wrote a book in the attic. Like many great writers. I feel like and Victor Hugo was in an attic anyway. That's, he and I are actually used, we're compared very often, I, actually, I, I'm sure as you authors. Are. That's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that. I was afraid that wouldn't come up in this conversation. <laughs> But Ava, if you find a thing that you really need to, so my my book, The Career Manifesto, was I wrote a memo for my team because they kept asking questions about what to do with their careers. Actually, they would all come to office hours and say, why wasn't I promoted? And I say, what do you really care about? Like, it's not being a senior account manager level three. It's something more important. And there, and it would reveal that there was this 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 thing that they weren't satisfied about professionally because they, they had an urge to do something more or different, but they didn't have a plan. And I wrote like a short document on how to do a plan and everybody got a lot out of it and I bet it, had a lot of follow-up questions. And I was like, oh, this is the thing I, I think I should probably That's like my working with manifest. me, Doc. I wrote this thing and Elad Gill publishes it through his book and on the web. And all of a sudden people are like, well, we're, give us more examples. Tell us more stuff. about it. So it's just, uh, I actually took it from Ours at Google and I, I facilitated this great manager panel and someone on the panel said, hey, you know, Ours has this user manual to him as a manager. So for new team members, they can just read, this is how, you know, I think, it, this is what I think it's like to work with me, how I like to be communicated with, how I make decisions, how I prefer, you know, and it sounds a little narcissistic, I admit it, but 
actually the exercise of writing a working with me doc was very good for my self-awareness. I was yep. like, yeah, how do I make decisions? Mm -hmm. What What is the preferred way of communicating with me when something's urgent, not urgent? How do you, how do I like to use one-on-ones? How, right. how do I want you to show up on the team meeting, whatever? And so I wrote an initial draft when I was at Google. I brought it with me to Stripe I, and I workshopped it. I sent it to my team. I said, is this legit sounding? Like, is this what it's like to work with me? I got some great comments and I brought it to Stripe. And when I first got to Stripe, you know, when companies are growing quickly, your team changes a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of anxiety. You have a new manager. You're like, I got to figure this person out. What's it like to work with them? And so actually my whole initial team at Stripe, we all ended up writing them and sharing them with each other, yeah. which was a great exercise. A user manual. Yeah, a user me. manual. But that that kind of, you put your memo out there. I put my, you know, working with me doc out there and you see there's demand. There's demand for more information like that, more examples of how you do things. And that that inspired me certainly to, to keep going. I, I said to Elad, I'm like, really? People aren't going to read a working with Claire document. And he said, you're wrong. So yeah. people will find, because it's, because a lot of, especially company builders, it's easy to describe the thing, but seeing an example of it, much more valuable. They're not, you know what I mean? Like, it's also yeah, there write a user manual, but like, actually I want right. to see an example of what does yours look like? What does mine look like? And there's like. a tactical thing about it that is a real kindness to your team on basic stuff like, I email all weekend, but I don't expect, yeah, I don't expect, you, I don't expect you, to. you to. And if I haven't said 100%. that expressly to everyone, then they don't know. Yeah. Or if I don't respond to your email and you need a response from me, you're please write right. back with 24. Give me 24 hours is what I say. And I if I don't respond, it means I think you didn't want need one. And you need to write back and say, actually, no, I'm asking you a question. Yeah. I say it's, uh, for, it's first Gmail, then text, never Slack. Yeah. There you go. You oh, gotta, the Slacks are overwhelming. The Slack is like a new inbox. I have like 7,000 inboxes now. So I, many. But so it's many. one where people only reply all. I, Mike, I don't you like know it. you're in my like book, it. right? So... Tell us Are we going to talk about this? I, I, so I know, but the audience doesn't so, know. So Mike and I, uh, I think true to both of our, our, our forms, worked on some new products mm -hmm. at, at Google. Uh, I was in one team. Some better Mike, than others. Yep. It was a mixed bag of getting some new, new products That's off the ground. That's how new products work. Um, it, the funniest part of it was bringing traditional media into an internet company, uh, which we both enjoyed the roller coaster of that. Uh, that's another story. And there was an individual on my team who was really the point person who was sort of dotted line reporting to Mike. Mm -hmm. uh, he reported to me directly. He dotted line reported to Mike. He was responsible for, for sort of our channel, if you will, mm -hmm. and uh, didn't show up to work. Uh, for a few days, no sign, no communication, no sign of him. And I started to be like, what am I going to do? Mike's going to wonder where this person is. And I, um, so I got in touch with you and I said, look, I have this situation on my team and so-and-so is not come to the office for a few days and I don't know where they are. And you said to me, you said, Claire, wow. I mean, they tell you about management. You read books about management, you prepare. But does anyone ever say to you, people go missing? <laughs> and I was like, no, I was not prepared for this. Uh, but it was very empathetic of you. Like you you didn't, I mean, I thought you were gonna be upset because there was some work this person owed you and, and, and you were empathetic in that way. You said, this is yeah. hard. You have a hard problem right now. And I really appreciated it. It was very Mike, because it was kind of funny, but also empathetic and what it, what can I do? 
you know, and, and I had reached out. We, we, we found the person just so everyone knows. But, you know, they were in a tough and place. Most importantly, the person ended up being okay. They're but okay. It was... But they, they were in a tough place and, and that happens. Humans, yeah. guess what? That's that's what it is. And you and you talk about in your book the difference between management and leadership. Yeah. And this I think this sensitivity to the human element is a bit is a big part of the of the distinction. It's actually the bridge part in a way, right? Management is sort of organizing these humans toward I'm going to get you from A to B and mm -hmm. leadership I think is inspiring those humans to to get farther yeah. than B. <laughs> There's a there's a question adjacent to it from Marcus in San Francisco. Claire, you teach a course on inclusion at Harvard Business School. What's the most important thing we can all do to create a more inclusive environment at work? Yeah, I, inclusion is really tactical. I think it becomes this sort of buzzword that becomes meaningless. Like, let's be inclusive. Right. What does that even mean? The first part of what everyone should do is realize that whatever room you're in, not everyone in the room feels equally included. Mm -hmm. And you should just know that. And you, if you're someone like I, I grew up in an environment, my parents were teachers. Uh, I was very lucky to attend a school where my dad was a teacher, where the classes were very small. I was expected to contribute, right? I, I, I was expected to speak up with my opinion. It was mm -hmm. part of how I was developed and brought up as a child and in my educational environment. You put me in a room with 10 people. I'm not, I'm not afraid to contribute. Right. Right. DNA right there with me. Uh, and I operated early in my career believing, well, that's true of everyone. Doesn't everyone show up and they're invited into a meeting and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to give my opinion. No, no, Claire, they do not feel that way for whatever reason, by the way. And I'm not going to start, you know, we don't know everybody's story, but not everybody in that room feels included. And so number one is recognize that and realize if you're the manager or you're the team leader of that meeting, your job is to get everyone included because you're going to get a better outcome. By the way, this is about business results. Why are they in the room? Because they know something, because they have value. And if they don't bring it out because they don't yeah. feel included, you're failing. You're failing to get the best product. And there's a lot of studies, actually, that inclusive teams will outperform regular teams three to five X uh, because there's stuff that's being raised that makes the product better, whatever the decision is. And so that's number one. And then the stuff is tactical, like literally noticing, hey, someone's not contributing. Someone's not contributing. Someone keeps opening to, their mouth and somebody and else not, talks before they do. Like, yes. how do you call or that, someone ask takes that person. credit for the thing they said. Oh. And you say, oh, yeah, thank you um, for repeating. Can you say more, you know, Janie? Because it was your original point. Right. <laughs> like sometimes I just catch, I'm like, come on. I'm glad you do that. Uh, but But I think it's really, it's about that. How do you how do you get them talking? How do you get them engaged? Have you read Joan Lipman's book? Uh, that's mm -hmm. what she said. No, it's I mean it's it's like a full list of all of the ways that that happens, specifically to women at work, yeah, and, and ways happens. that they're they're not included or not given credit and so on. And it's good. I try to be sensitive to it too. Um, one other thing that, that we do is we start every meeting, every with meeting, check in with five minutes of chit chat. Yeah, good. And chit chat is like it's a little more casual. It's okay if you're a minute or two late. Yeah. And if you as the meeting owner, it's your job to sort of go around and get, get people, everybody, just get everybody a little warmed up, I talk get everybody about that involved. In the with a check-in. Yeah. Have everybody say something at the beginning so that they're in the mode. So that they're in We're the mode. We're talking. This next question came directly to me on LinkedIn. And it was Sanjay in Detroit. He says, Mike, you had Jeff Brown from Ally Financial on the podcast and talked a bit about electric vehicles and self-driving cars. JB said self-driving cars are a long way off in the distance. Mm. Claire... You're an expert in this topic. Oh, expert Tell us is generous. But. About autonomous vehicles. So the thing about autonomous vehicles is there's this quote, which is we've been saying they're coming in 10 years for 40 years. 
So completely legitimate from from our listeners. But in fairness, that's say, true about a lot of technologies. It that is Look not at AI. A, that's right. It was coming in the next five years for fifteen years, and now, hey, what? Guess what? It's here. It's here. It's and here. It's happening fast. Uh, autonomous vehicles, same thing. You know, it's interesting to me to get the chance to work on this again distantly, but now as a board member, is to see the work to see humans innovating uh, within machines and computers and LIDAR. And it, it's just uh, really inspiring. But I will tell you, it is happening. You know, how does change, how does technological change happen? It's not like we all wake up and now it's different. It's rolling out. And there are, you know, it's not all going well. You know this. There's uh, San Francisco has a few companies that have got autonomous vehicles on the road picking people up, driving them around. Yep. Waymo, Cruise, Cruise has had some challenges recently. Um, Aurora, the company I'm involved in, has autonomous trucks on some trucking routes. They're not anywhere near where you and I live, so we don't see them. Mm -hmm. They currently have the safety driver in the vehicle, but but the goal is to pull that driver next year. Uh, and we're on the roadmap. That's a big deal. Uh, it's a big, and they've announced that to investors. I'm not sharing any news here. Uh, but you got to be pretty confident in your technology if you're saying we're getting towards pulling the driver, the safety yeah, driver. Yeah, especially because you're not doing it with a moped. And you're got doing it with an 18-wheeler. You know, yeah, yeah. You're doing that with a very serious uh, serious vehicle. Yeah. I have actually been inside some of these trucks now. They are so it's big. so cool. What a time <laughs> to be so alive. Yeah. So it's so it's right it's, around the it's, corner. Yeah, I, I, I think... Uh, yeah, I think that the expression it's going to happen in the next 10 years is now actually it's true. It's now accurate. I would say maybe five. Claire, this was amazing. <laughs> what a pleasure it was to great. catch up with you on all these topics. Yeah. And I enjoyed your book so much. I enjoyed talking about, about it with you. And I'd encourage all of our listeners, especially now that you know that I get a reference in the book. <laughs> yeah. Scaling, if you're a Mike Stive fan, find it. Scaling People by Claire Hughes Johnson. Check it out. It's amazing. And Claire... Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, friends, I really enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed it too. Claire's fantastic. And the conversation with, uh, with Claire, both reading her book and spending time with her in person, uh, it reminds me of this James Clear quote that we don't rise to the level of our goals, but we fall to the level of our systems. And a lot of what you heard here today were systems for better understanding yourself as a leader, systems for manage building teams and managing people, for managing budgets and so on. And I guess just sort of as you as, as you as you go about the rest of your week, I'd encourage everybody to think about where in your work and where in your life personally do you find that you sometimes struggle to achieve your goals, especially when things get hard? And where might a system help? Whether it's a system to eat right, or a system to go to the gym every day or a system to get your team together for better communications at work, a system to track KPIs. And we talked about how it, more systems is not necessarily better, but the minimally necessary set of systems to help you achieve what you need is something that you might find as an addition you wanna make this week to your work and your life. So with that, I thank Claire, uh, and I also want to, of course, thank Jen, Jada, and the team at Blue Duck Media for pulling this all together. I thank Bahid, who does all the magic in the studio, Dylan, Sasha Gay, Nathan, and Christine at iHeart, Ben and the team at William Morris Endeavor for all their support. And I'll remind you that Office Hours is a production of Blue Duck Media and distributed by iHeartRadio. I'll see you next week, everybody. Stay on your grind. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.